When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. It's October, the writer's strike is officially over, and we are currently gearing up for the return of this show with all new episodes very soon. But this week, we are continuing our series of episodes with guests who are nominated at the Emmy Awards, which were supposed to happen this past month, but have since been pushed to January. Today, we are revisiting the really fun conversation I had with first-time nominee Alan Ruck just after the series finale of Succession aired back in May. Up top, Alan and I got into a very spoilery conversation about how that show ended, both for his character Connor Roy and the rest of the Roy clan. So if you are somehow not cut up after a summer with very little new TV to watch, I suggest you do that now. We also talked about the very strange arc of Alan's career, from his breakthrough role as Cameron Fry in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, to the career renaissance that has come as a result of succession. As he tells me, he's very glad creator Jesse Armstrong ignored his request to be killed off after season two. This is a really wonderful conversation with a great actor who will hopefully be getting back to work soon once the actor's strike is resolved. Here's me with the great Alan Ruck. I actually did not watch it Sunday night because we had some stuff going on, uh, just family stuff, and it got to be late. And it was like, I don't want to do that now. So I woke up <laughs> uh, Monday morning and like at eight o'clock in the morning, I watched the show. <laughs> and uh, I was I was messed up all day. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just got the blues pretty hard. I thought that Jesse and, and all of our writers did a beautiful job of sewing everything up in a way that made perfect sense, uh, you know, and honored sort of the spirit of the show. There was no happy ending. I mean, except for Tom. I uh, guess. I don't know how happy he's going to be. <laughs> be careful what you wish for, right? Because you might get it. Um, so I thought it was really excellent in that regard that... Um, some things are just left ambivalent, you know, and, and that's kind of been Jesse's approach to the show is that he's fascinated by all the different reactions to the different plot points, the different events, the different characters. Um, I, I was just at a school function yesterday for my daughter and a woman came up to me and said, I hate Shiv. I hate her. And I was like, okay. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> do you get, do you get that a lot? People coming up to you with uh, strong opinions about the show? Um, most, most of the people that I meet really enjoy it. I do have some close friends though, that are like, couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Um, there's some people that I really, you know, love and admire. And they're like, they were too mean. I don't, I just don't want to spend hours of my life watching people be miserable to each other. That has never bothered me. <laughs> I don't, I think, you know, I think it's great. If the story's good, I, I don't. I don't need a hero. Um, well, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I could have. Uh, I could have used more Connor in the finale. I don't know about you, but we did get one. You know, great last scene with him. Um, you know, he's he's headed to Melania Trump's homeland, which is very exciting. <laughs> well, I'd like to get rid of pretty much everything 
I have some pretty cool stuff coming in, like a cow print couch. Wow. Yay long. Great. Con, you don't want to keep more for... Well, we're planning on if, when, Mencken comes through, um, we're actually uh, experimenting with an idea. I have a play reading in six to eight months, and uh, Con is going to Slovenia, and I'll be working on that, so we're going to try... Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, really excited how this long-distance thing can uh, add another dimension. You yeah, know. add a little spice, yeah. you know, well, as we, you know, get deeper into the marriage. Yeah, that's sexy. They call that the second week itch, I believe. Rome! <laughs> yeah. We're excited. Yeah. I heard the latest about the uh, Wisconsin court thing. I'm sorry, what court thing? Uh, it's a uh, hiccup. Just mm. a little hiccup for Jared, I think. Okay. How do you think the future uh, is going to go for, for Connor and Willa with their, their long-distance relationship and what's ahead? I don't actually think it bodes well. Um, you know, uh, Jesse's uh, big um, theory, I think it's a life theory with him, is that uh, people don't change. I actually, it, for the characters in this show, I think that's absolutely true. So Connor and Willa had a really sweet moment, a, a brief uh, bit of time where they were like together and they were partners and they were equals. And they had that great scene together on, on the day of the wedding death. And uh, then they got married. But, you know, I think she's getting scared. She's getting scared. Like, I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this guy. We're going to Slovenia. I don't want to go to Slovenia. I want to do my plays. Oh, and I think Connor was really counting on her coming along. I think without her, he's just going to be a mess. So I don't know. I mean, either Mencken makes it and, and Connor will go to Slovenia, but I don't think he'll last there too long. I think he'll relinquish his post pretty quickly if, if uh, Willa doesn't come to see him very often. And then um, if he doesn't take the position or if Mencken loses and Connor's around all the time in New York, that's probably going to drive Willa out of her mind. So, <laughs> I think so. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that hopeful for them, really. Yeah. I was sad we didn't get to see the, the redecorated apartment, too. That, that, <laughs> that held some promise, I think. Yeah, I would love to see that uh, cow print couch yay long. <laughs> Um, we get, we get that scene with, with you in the apartment. And then there's sort of this other scene that we see through the TV screen of this virtual dinner with Brian Cox's character. What are your, when did you film that? And what are your memories of of filming that really, what turned out to be a really sweet scene with, with Brian and some of the other, um, actors on the show? We did that my absolute last day of work. And, and then we, we filmed the scene of me and my siblings watching it later that day did it all in one day because uh, um, uh, brian had different things going on and he could show up for a day and that's that's when we did it and it happened to be my last day of work me and justine so the whole thing was bittersweet it was uh it was a fun thing to do it was tricky because we actually filmed that whole um virtual dinner with dad thing on an iphone oh wow just to give it that you know <laughs> yeah. to give it some uh reality and um Justine, for much of it, was the camera operator. She did a really good job. There was there was one point where uh, that didn't wound up making it into the show where they hand she hands the phone to me so I can film her doing like famous quotations from Shakespeare and so forth. <laughs> um, and I, me and cell phones, me and technology. This is not a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> I always like if somebody hands me a phone, I grab it the wrong way, and I'm in some different app. You know, I do something like that. And that's what happened. Um, <laughs> you, you messed up her take? I, I fucked it all up. 
<laughs> um, we did get to see you do your Logan Roy impression. Was that a little uh, intimidating to do that in front of Brian Cox? No, because actually I think something that Brian and Logan share in common is like grow a pair, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just do it, just do it, you know, go ahead, mock me out. Let's see what you got. Um, <laughs> so anyway, he's, uh, Brian's a wonderful guy and he's, he's got a great sense of humor about himself, you know, and, um, so it wasn't really intimidating at all. You know, it was great fun. I give you ladies and gentlemen, I am a little teapot oh, okay. in the manner of. Mr. Logan Roy. Very good. Oh my gosh. Show. I am a little teapot. Fuck off! <laughs> Short and stout. What did you fucking call me? Here's my handle. Here's my fucking spout. When I get steamed up, you can hear me shout. Frank Vernon is a moron. Carl Miller is a kraut. <laughs> what do you think that scene tells us about? Uh, Logan Roy's relationship with Connor, which has always seemed so strained and so distant in previous seasons and episodes. And I think for me, at least watching it, you realize that they did have a closeness that maybe we never got to see compared to his relationship with the other kids. Is that how you took it? Absolutely. I think we saw a few hints of this along the way in the first season, uh, the sad sack wasp trap, you know, the, uh, the reckney ball that the old man put me in charge of. There was a scene we had in the car where we're just talking about things and, you know, like my my political plans and all this kind of stuff. And he's very patient. And he just says, well, why don't we just concentrate on one thing at a time? And you know. <laughs> so I, I think over the years, I think Logan had he care. I think he carried some guilt about Connor because yeah. he had this boy with this woman and the marriage was a disaster. And the boy, I mean, Connor was probably a special needs kid. I mean, ADHD and other things and, and never properly addressed. And uh, then the old man d- divorces the mom and she's in and out of institutions and she's got pills and vodka problems. And um, So I think that on some level, uh, Logan has carried a bit of guilt about uh, Connor. And even though he's a bitter disappointment, <laughs> You know, because, I mean, if it doesn't pertain to the business, Logan's not that interested. Um, but uh, I think we we had some moments where uh, it was very relaxed and he was he could sort of let his guard down around Connor because it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. There was not that same pressure that with the with the other kids for them to become something. He kind of felt like Connor, uh, despite his ambitions to be president, had maybe become what he was going to become. Well, yeah, I, I, I think uh, the Shakespeareans called that being a bit fond, you know, a bit uh, uh, like slightly touched. And Con- uh, uh, Connor's not stupid. He does some really dumb things, but he's not stupid. He reads he reads stuff that probably it, I, I once described him as being um, like a pack of um, trivial pursuit cards that's all mixed up and doesn't make any sense. And I think his head is jammed full of just arcane and weird, obscure knowledge that doesn't really add up to much of anything. You know, he's just who he is and he's, he's a little scrambled. And um, I think, uh, you know, Logan on some level too is like, well, this is my boy who's touched. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is my simple boy. Um, I feel like you've brought a lot of yourself to this character over the seasons what do you think it was about you that made Jesse Armstrong, the the creators of the show, you know, Adam McKay, want you for this role? What what did they see in you that they that they saw in Connor? Do you think uh, you'll really have to ask them? I'm I'm not sure. I think um, you know. At one point, Kieran said, "I don't think they knew who Connor was until you showed up." He was basically saying that 
I'm Connor. So I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, just in, in the thing, the, the email my uh, uh, a, a manager sent to me before the audition, it said, he's not in line to take over the company. This part will grow over time. And so uh, good news, bad news, not, not key to the central drama, not really involved in the central drama, but also didn't have the pressure of being involved in the central drama. So it was kind of a dream part. I got to fly in for a few days, say some really insane shit, uh, <laughs> kind of a license to steal, and then um, go away. And then they they chop all the wood and carry all the water and keep the story going forward. You know, um, I'm not exactly what it, uh, you know, they come from comedy, both, I mean, Adam and Jesse both come from comedic backgrounds and, uh, so maybe they just felt like I could handle the the lighter, sillier moments, and uh, I'm I, you have to ask them. I don't know. <laughs> Did you ever have misgivings about not being in the show more, or getting scenes oh. that you really loved get cut out, or, or things like that? Because there are you know there are stretches that you're that you're not in very much, and then there's some episodes that you're more central to. Um, yeah. How did you feel about that? Well, in the second season. Uh, the first season had gone, you know, very well and I had had some stuff to do. Uh, and then the second season started and I had, I was in a bunch of like family scenes, group scenes, but I didn't have any scenes that were just like me and another person. You know, I was always just like saying some random stuff in the midst of a gathering. Um, and for like, it was like three episodes. I didn't do anything. And I actually wrote to um, Jesse and to Mark Mylod, and I said, what do you think about killing me off? And they, they were, and I'm grateful. They said, no, 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 no. We need you. We need you. And, and there's not anything right now, uh, not much right now, but there will be more later. And they were true to their word, you know, and um, there's just an awful, awful lot of story to tell. And so I, I kind of got my head out of my ass a little bit about that and was like, right. I mean, this is just, this is my part in this play. And so let's see where it goes. And then, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that they, they didn't take me up on my offer to. You really, you really felt like you wanted them to kill you off because you didn't have well, enough to do. It's vanity. It's vanity. At that point, uh, it, it, that point uh, of the second season, at the end of the first season, we had made this big splash. It was kind of a slow roll. And then it just took off like a rocket. Definitely. And yeah. The reason I, uh, the, the moment I kind of knew that we were a hit show was at the read through for the first episodes of the second season. And one of our producers, Kevin Messick, had the succession theme song, Nick Bertel's music, on his phone. And he was just, before we started reading, he just took his phone and started waving it in the air, <laughs> playing the music. And I'm like, oh man, this is huge. This is, this is a real thing, you know? And my vanity was, uh, I'm on maybe the best show on television right now, but people are like, who do you play? What do you, Oh, Oh the, yeah. And, and it, it, the way the show is written is the way that a lot of people reacted to my presence or lack of presence on the show. They're like, Oh yeah. Kendall, the oldest son. Like, <laughs> yeah. The no. oldest son. <laughs> no. So, I mean, that was, that was a true thing of, of me being like, no, <laughs> um, <laughs> So it was just, uh, it was just that it was just my vanity of wanting to do more in an excellent, excellent show. There is that great breaking point in episode in Italy that I guess is in season three, right? Where you assert yourself as the eldest son and you really kind of 
give them a piece of your mind for the first time in that way. I am the eldest son. Well, yeah, obviously, Colin, but you know what he means. I am the eldest son. And no one told me about this fucking merger of fucking equals. And what if I want to take over because I am the eldest son? All right. Easy, Con. I'm the eldest son. Okay. I'm the eldest son, Whoa. and yeah. I must be considered, and I need to be taken into account. Con, we're, we're talking about what I actually lost. Shut up. What, you're hurt? I didn't see Pop for three years, but your spoon wasn't shiny enough. Huh? What? It is not all about you. I thought you loved me. Asshole. I do love you. I love all three of you pricks, but what do I get from you chumps but chump change? Fucking chump change. Well, fuck you. I'm here for your mom's wedding, and I proposed to my fiance. And no one has said congratulations. No one. So did that feel cathartic in a way to to get that off your chest as Connor? Thrilling. It was thrilling. And uh, <laughs> first of all, so so pleased to have been given some teeth. You know, Jesse gave Connor some teeth in that and he stood up for himself because up until that point, he'd been kind of a verbal punching bag. You know, he'd say something that was just off the wall. And then Kendall would quickly say, you're a moron. (laughs) And, you know, and then that was it. There was no like there was no snappy rejoinder. There was no, you know, cool comeback for Connor uh, as opposed to somebody like Roman, who just would have been like, you know, whipped out his word sword. uh started dueling with Kendall. Um, so yeah, that was, uh, that w- it was easy to do that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, I no think the, uh, the, the Connor insult that will always uh, stand out to me is Shiv calling him the first pancake, which right. uh, I think really says it all right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's many things at once. It's brutal. It's very funny and it couldn't be more true, <laughs> you know? And, um, he came out funny, you know, he had a mom with uh, mental challenges and had an absentee father who in his way has had his own mental challenges. He he became a tough, hard person very, very early in life. And, um, you know, he never let go of that. He never he never rel- relinquished his armor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kendall is, of course, still calling himself the the eldest boy in the in the finale. Yeah. And so that felt like a callback as well to to that conversation, and he can't let go of, of that as his identity. Um, yeah, I mean the the evolution of Connor over the seasons, I think, was very significant, and he, I think, does go from a punchline in some ways to someone much more sympathetic, despite his very questionable political uh, views, I would say. Um, but he he is very, you know, there is a sweetness to him that really comes through, um, I think, especially in those scenes with Willa um, in this final season. Um, how did you how did you react to that and, and think about his evolution and, and giving him more depth um, as it progressed? You know, maybe one of the reasons that these guys wanted me to do this part is just like looking at me. I don't think I give off meanness, <laughs> you know, you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be like, oh, be, be scared of that guy. He, you know, he might fuck you up. I don't think I give that off. Yeah. And, um, maybe as a contrast to someone like Brian Cox or, or the, who has the that kids. in him. I mean, they all they're very edgy, uh, sharp tongued people. And Connor is not mean. 
he maybe doesn't have that chip, you know, and it's not that he's not selfish. It's not that he's not a sociopath because he is. I mean, he doesn't know how regular people live. He, he, he has no clue, you know, in his concession speech, he's like, hey, I'm a millionaire. Sorry, I'm billionaire. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, mean, yeah. I happen to be a billionaire. Sorry. But honestly, America, you flunked it. I guess you're going to have to find some other poor mooks paps to suckle on. Okay. The corrupt bipartisan system zombie All right. marches on. And so I call out to my friends tonight, to my people. I say, conheads, I salute you. And America, be afraid. Be warned. For the conheads are coming. Thank you. God bless America. So he is entitled. He's just as entitled as the other kids. It's just that he's not, he's not edgy in that way. He's not, he's not, his heart isn't hard. So maybe that's why they hired me. I don't know. They're like, oh, he looks like a softie. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the concession speech, and I, I love that scene and the whole presidential run storyline of this last season. Um, why do you think that Connor wanted to run for president? Why why was that something that, that got in his head? Because it's been in his head from the beginning of the show, really. Absolutely. It was uh, when I auditioned for Adam McKay, I actually I was it was a long it's a long story. It was a rush job and I didn't actually have a chance to look at the, the material that much. But there was that line that cracked me up. It says, hey, hey, pop, there's this job I want. It's called president of the United States. And then later they, they had me say that to to Willa instead. Hey, let's go over here. Okay. Right by the Kings. This is perfect. OK. OK. OK, listen. I think I finally found a job I want to do. Okay, what is it? President of the United States. <laughs> but uh, I said, he's he's putting on Logan, right? And, and Adam McKay said, no, 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 no. Deadly serious. And um, so I think just like all, just like the other kids, they all desperately wanted validation and, an and affection from Logan, which was, and, and Connor knew better by this point, really, that that was never going to happen, you know? But it didn't stop him from wanting it. And so he was like, what's the biggest, craziest thing I could pull off that would make the old man sit down and say, wow, I didn't think he had it in you, you know, because go big or go home. Right. So <laughs> um, it was all about that. And so then the after Logan died, I think that thing really lost its luster, but it was still in motion. Uh, and um it's just that kind of thing that you do when you lose someone. It's it's a very human thing to try to move forward and do some positive, do some living, you know, move forward. And so I think that um, he was like, well, I might as well see it through, you know, and maybe maybe the old man, wherever he is, will look down and see me achieving greatness. <laughs> what do you think Connor would have said at Logan's funeral if he had been allowed to deliver his, you know, formally inventive eulogy? <laughs> well, th there was there was a prop thing that was put in my hand for that little uh, scene in the vestibule with uh, Siobhan, where I say I have this thing, it's like 20 pages long. Um, and it was all drivel. It was all just, it was just a stream of consciousness, basically. And I think he would have um, said a, a, a number of things to like deify Logan, you know, mm -hmm. And then just would have, uh, just as in the concession speech, just gone off on tangents, you know, blaming people, shaming people, um, warning people. Um, I think it would have been a lot of that. It would have, it would have been Connor's fire and brimstone. 
How do you feel like the show changed for you after Logan Roy's death, after Brian Cox, you know, wasn't in it in that central way anymore? Do you feel like there was a a void and it kind of had to end at that point? Or or how did you think about that? Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, Jesse told us almost a year ago, uh, uh, not too long before we started reading through uh, the first episode of the last season here, uh, that Logan was going to die in the third episode. And of course, he'd, he'd spoken with Brian before and they'd gone through it, the whole thing. And it's like, if if the sun is extinguished, then what do the planets do? You know, they, they've lost their, they've lost the thing that really uh, has held them together. Uh, and uh, it absolutely had to end because it, I, I don't know what the show would have been had it continued past this point. I, it, it wouldn't have made any sense to me. I want to ask about working with Jeremy Strong as well, who to me has just delivered, you know, one of the the greatest TV performances of all time as this central character in the in the show. Um, a lot has obviously been written and talked about around his methods as an actor. And I wanted to just hear from you. Do you feel like that's been overblown? Do you think that um, there's something that gets lost in that conversation around, you know, what who he is as, a, as an actor and as a co-worker? He is a fabulously talented actor, and he truly believes to give his best performance, he's got to sort of stay in his zone with no distractions, kind of 24-7, kind of. And um, as you say, the work is gorgeous. I mean, he just delivered week after week, moment after moment, and you never doubt him for a second. He's really gifted. Every actor is different. That's what he needs to get into his zone. That's fine with me. As long as it doesn't fuck up my action, as long as he's like, you know, and thank God I've never worked with people like this, but I've heard of people like this who say things like, is that the way you're going to do that? Because there's this thing I want to do. And if you do that, it, it messes me up. and I can't, you know, so they're trying to, you know, yeah, Jeremy, pull the strings. Yeah. 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 Jeremy was never manipulative like that. He, he never did anything like that. Um, and look, the, the truth is you work with somebody, even if you love them, uh, there's things that they're going to do that are going to irritate you. I mean. Um, like he said of Kieran, Kieran's not encumbered by too much analysis. And for me, I, I felt like Kieran in the show is like, you do your work at home. And when you get to work, you kind of get up on the diving board and you jump off and you see what happens. And hopefully there's water in the pool, you know, but it was kind of like having accidents. You know, everybody comes in with their agenda and you just go and you see how it shakes out. Um, and in this show, I, I was more like uh, uh, Kieran's approach. I mean, you, you, you think about it constantly. I mean, we're all very self-involved actors, you know, as a rule. So you get this part and it's, it's like, I, Oh, I, I have to do this or there's, I have to be in this emotional state. You do all your work at home because um, of ego, <laughs> you know, and you want people to see you at your best. Right. But um, you know, Brian uh, um, in the first uh, season, I think it was in that fourth episode, in the Reckney Ball episode, uh, Jeremy was having a little trouble sort of justifying some blocking. It was it was not sitting well with him, you know. And our director, uh, Adam Arkin, at that time, they were going over it and they were like, we were in the middle of shooting and then shooting stopped because they had to resolve this problem. And Brian looked at me and he said, I believe in less talk and more do. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Brian. You know, I mean, he's been an actor for 60 years. So uh, 
he has his ways of doing things and, and, and sometimes, and I'm sure that, you know, that might piss off somebody else who's like, no, we need to talk about this. We need to, you know, but, um, I didn't feel that way in this. I just, the writing was so good. The writing was so good. You would re- you knew exactly where you were supposed to be emotionally. There was no, uh, 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 big research to do about like, oh, where is he? It was just, just boldly apparent, easy. When the writing is good, it is so much easier to act. Coming up, a lot of people have drawn a parallel between Cameron Fry and Connor Roy. But what does the man who played them both decades apart think? And later, how succession has transformed Alan Ruck's career and what he really wants to do next. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other HBO stars like Veep's Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Barry's Bill Hader, and Curb Your Enthusiasm's J.B. Smoove, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Alan Ruck. I was curious if you are aware of this online theory that there's some sort of connection between Cameron Fry and Connor Roy, that there's a, a through line there, whether they're the same person or or have uh, have some connection. Is that something that you've uh, you've seen? And, and I, do you have any thoughts about it? Well, well, people have mentioned, you know, two messed up sons of very wealthy fathers, and, you know, all, all the privileges, none of the love. Um I'm waiting for somebody to come to really flesh that theory out. Maybe you could do it. Flesh that theory out, <laughs> like they did the, the the Fight Club theory of of right, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, wa- I'm waiting for some, some very clever person to to flesh that the the Connor uh, Cameron connection. Yeah. Well, there's all yeah. There's the other theory that uh, that Ferris is a figment of Cameron's imagination. That's that's the other right. one that the people like to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a movie that you know. I think I've seen more than, than almost any other. And I think a lot of people can probably say the same. Um, you know, I imagine that because it was so early in your career, you couldn't have known how much cultural influence it would have and, and how much people would still be talking about it so many years later. Um, did you, did it feel special in that way while you were making it? What, what stands out for you when you think about it now? 
Well, I remember I felt very lucky that I was going to be doing this movie with Matthew, who I just spent nine months uh, doing a play with, you know. Uh, and so that was just easy. And I also was really thrilled because I I had the dramatic part in that lighthearted, really comedy. I mean, sweet comedy. I I, I was sort of the motor in a way uh, for any sort of uh, um, friction or, uh, uh, you know, challenges. I'm so disappointed in Cameron. 20 bucks says he's sitting in his car debating about whether or not he should go out. He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me until I come over. He'll make me feel guilty. This is, this is ridiculous, okay? I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, with, I'll go. Shit. So I worked very hard on that, and... Um, it came out and, you know, it did well. I mean, it's, this is so ridiculous. This is so long ago. We were the number 10 box office movie for the year. It, it made $77 million. And like today, <laughs> you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be in the top 20 probably, you know? Yeah. And that kind of movie wouldn't be in the top 20. No, no. Um, uh, and so I, I knew we did, did a good job and, uh, but the cultural impact thing, I actually really disliked that movie for a while. There was a period not too long after there uh, where I, I couldn't seem to get any work. Things were not so great. And then I thought maybe, well, that's it. That was like my one shot. And you know, I need to go find another way to make a living. No. So then I wasn't really that happy about Ferris, but then um, things got better. Was that because people was that because people only saw you as that character, that thing of sort of yeah. being I mean, it was like it was like too successful in a way that they you couldn't break out of it? Yeah. I mean, I was talking with my friend Richard Kind last night and he, he said, I don't want to be remembered. <laughs> he, he said, I don't want to be Carol O'Connor. I don't want to be Henry Winkler, you know, where people are kind of Archie or Fonzie or, you know, because he just wants to play, and you know, like most actors do, a lot of different parts and, and hopefully be well received in, in all of them. But um, even somebody recently said in writing about this show, they said, Alan Ruck, who will always be Cameron. <laughs> you know, it's like, so uh, uh, there was some of that uh, resentment, like I, I couldn't escape it and, and, maybe I shouldn't have, uh, I don't know. I wouldn't have done anything any differently. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've worked, you know, consistently for 40 something years now. Um, but it does feel like if there was something that was going to make it so that you weren't always Cameron and, and you, that you weren't, that that's not the thing you were always known for. It has been this show and that's, that's, that must've changed things for you. And after a long time, right? Yeah. It, it's, um, I wanted a show like this for so long that was, you know, basically uh, ostensibly a drama, but was just wickedly funny. And uh, I did a pilot for a, a TV show about 35 years ago about photojournalists in Vietnam. And it was it had even though it was a network show, um, it had a similar tone that it was very serious. The backdrop was Vietnam. We were photographers and people were dying and all that. But the camaraderie. Uh, among the press corps was just like raunchy. I mean, as raunchy as you can get for NBC, but like, just like raunchy, ornery, uh, witty dialogue, you know, and, uh, and it didn't go, I mean, obviously, but I'd been looking for something like that ever since. And then this showed up and, and was, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. So how, given that, how do you feel now that it's officially over now that the, the last episode has aired? I mean, 
I, I don't know if it was a lot of people felt like maybe it was time to end it, but did you hope it would go on longer? Did you urge uh, Jesse Armstrong to keep going after you asked to be killed off? Well, you know, I'm so glad that they they um, said, no, we're keeping you because then, you know, frankly, we got nice raises <laughs> in our, thir- our in our third season. So I'm glad I didn't miss that. Um, uh you know, uh, uh, somewhere, I think it was in the third season, uh, a journalist asked uh, Georgia Pritchett, how long do you think it'll go? And she said, no more than five, probably four. And at the time, I didn't want to hear that because I was like, this is the ride of my life, you know. And uh, now I, I know it was exactly right. And I think Jesse's very smart that um, we we went out on the highest note possible for our show and it would have it would have been a disgrace to to do an additional season just to make money or just because we love every i mean i'm crazy about the the crew and the cast they're just wonderful people and if it was just a selfish thing like that like i don't want to give this up because it's too much fun it would have been a great disservice to the show and it would have turned into something um sad yeah uh, yeah. I'm already hearing some people saying, you know, predicting that there's going to be a movie some somewhere down the line, uh, you know, uh, another season, a, a Christmas special in the in the UK tradition. Um, <laughs> could you imagine anything like that? Is there any a Christmas special? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what that would be. The only thing that I thought and I was talking with Nick Braun, I said, the only thing I could see is like the disgusting brothers. Somehow yeah, you the and spinoff. <laughs> and he, yeah. And he said, he said, but that would be wildly different in tone from succession. And they, they'd have to go back to like Jesse's comedy roots. And, and, that, and he said, he said, and I don't think Matthew or I would really want to do that because there was something so pure in a way about this show that you kind of don't want to tart it up with a bunch of, you know, just like hanging ornaments on it to keep it going. It, it would be, it would be not good. What doors do you feel like this job has opened for you now? I mean, to me, uh, your performance in in that show, The Dropout, um, was one example of something that I just felt like maybe came out of people seeing you on Succession. And I thought you were really wonderful and, and hilarious on that show. Um, has it changed the types of roles that you're you're being offered? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, before this show, I didn't get I got offers to maybe do like an episode of this, that or the other thing. It wasn't like I got offers to do a movie like we want you to do this movie. Do you want to do it? I always usually had to go in and meet people, read for them, whatever. And I'd made peace with that. But now people are just calling up and saying, would you like to do this? Uh, which is very nice. And and um, huge. yeah, and I've waited for it for a long time. And it's very, very satisfying to just that somebody clocks your work and they're like, oh, yeah, that part we have. He could totally do that. See if he wants to do it. Um, so that's what this show has done for me, among other things. But just in, in terms of uh, being on a show that got so much attention so much positive attention. And so then uh, a lot of that came my way. Some of that came my way and it has improved my, uh, my working life. Are there things that you want to do in this business that you haven't been able to do before this, that you now think that you might be able to? I I don't know that um, I'm a director at all. I mean, I think if that, if I had those genes, I think they would have shown themselves by now, you know, uh, there's some people that are just born to do it. And it's a distinct, separate talent uh, from acting talent. Um, I've written some stuff that nobody ever needs to read. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, like some short stories and stuff that are OK. But, you know, not, I'm not a 
I'm not a screenwriter. And uh, maybe if if uh, I had access to some really good material and some money, I would like to produce some things. Um, but we'll see what happens, you know. Well, I could certainly imagine you being at the center of a, you know, film or, or TV project in a way that you haven't really been able to to do before. Yeah, I think, well, at, at this age, too, being like, you know, uh, a, an old cisgender white man, <laughs> there's different things. There's different things that are opening up for me. Uh, I'm getting offered pricks and bastards, which <laughs> they wouldn't consider me uh, for that stuff before. So maybe it's the age I am now and maybe it's, you know, uh, uh, the succession influence, but um, I'm, I'm getting offered more interesting parts, just not like, you know, the goofy sidekick or, you know. Yeah, so people people finally see you as, as something more than than Cameron. Yeah, yeah, they do. It's really satisfying. So now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions about some firsts in your in your life and career um, around comedy. Um, going all the way back to childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid? It was probably um, Bill Dana, Jose Jimenez. Remember, this is a long time. I mean, I'm old. Um, <laughs> but I used to, you know, when I, there were only three channels when I was a kid. And uh, you watch, I watched stuff with my parents and my dad was usually the one who picked the show. So I'd watch Ed Sullivan, the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights. And uh, it was stuff like that when I was really little, like Topo Gijo, the the, the little mouse, and the, the ventriloquist and the stuff like that cracked me up. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? Um, that became uh, pretty clear in high school. I mean... My family thought I was funny. My, uh, I had an aunt who used to call me the senator. Apparently, I had a, 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 an older cousin. One of my mother's older brothers had a, a, a son who's like 20 years older than me. And when he was little, he would just, he would just hold, hold forth like five years old and just start you know, telling stories and, and kind of bossing people around. And they called him the senator. And so then when I was little, I started to exhibit some of that same stuff. And my aunt pointed, pointed at me and said, it's the senator all over again. So I was funny. I, I mean, my family thought I was funny. But uh, in terms of other people, it was in high school starting to do plays. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can do this. I'm sure you have uh, done many, many auditions over over the many years. Um, is there a story that stands out from, from an audition you did, um, perhaps for something that, that you didn't get? Oh, well, there was a lot of those. <laughs> um let's see um well this is funny uh this is actually fairly recent steven root and i were called in for uh, a network test for some like sidekick part in a, a sitcom and um we were over 20th century fox and they always make you show up it's like you and like the four other guys they want or you know are going to show to the big bosses and you have to sit in the room and stare at each other and you all know why you're there. You know, they, right. And you just try to be quiet and, you know, not lose your mind. And um, so uh, Stephen went in and did his thing and they told him to wait. And I went in and did my thing and they told me to wait. And the other um, contestants, so to speak, were three of the most beautiful black men you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I mean, they, they were like stunning leading men, you know, so it's like already they don't know what they're looking for. Right. Yeah, this yeah, could go some different ways. They're going to have some choices. 
And so then um, I think uh, Stephen and I both in, went in a second time and then uh, we were sitting and the lady came out and she said, Stephen, Alan, you can go. Thank you. <laughs> and so Stephen and I walk out and we're in the parking lot walking toward the, you know, the structure. And he puts his arm around my shoulder and goes, well, baby, it ain't us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I mean, there's remember? a lot. Oh, God, yeah. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. it oh, here's a weird one. There was this after Groundhog Day came out. There was like the TV version, the TV movie of Groundhog Day. But it wasn't very good. It was it wasn't very good. And um, I was auditioning for everything at that point because I needed money. And so it's like we have an audition for you for this thing. And I went in and I, I thought it was stupid. You know, I, I, I just didn't think and I I just kind of couldn't connect to it. And so I'm in the audition. I'm reading for the the director and the the casting director. And, um, in the middle of it, I said, you guys, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry if I've wasted your time. I said, but I just don't, I don't have it. I, I don't have, I don't have it today with this. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not, it's not going to go. It's not going to work. <laughs> and they're like, that's okay. That's okay. We're not machines. Of course, Alan, don't worry about it. And the director puts his arm around me and walks me to the elevators and gives me this big speech about how he used to play a lot of squash and some days he could do no wrong and other days he couldn't get his racket on the ball. So it's just, you know, don't worry <laughs> about it, kid. And um, I go home and I immediately get a call from my manager and she's like, what the fuck happened? And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, they called and they were outraged. They said you were embarrassing. They said it was horrible. They said that they didn't know where to look. And uh, I said, well, fuck you. And I, not her, but I went back the next day because it was a groundhog day. Yeah, yeah. Groundhog I Day. Went back the next day to her office because I knew they were having more auditions at exactly the same time. <laughs> right. So it was kind of like Groundhog Day and it scared the shit out of them. And they were like, whoa, 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 what was that? And I'm like, I'm here to read. <laughs> <laughs> and I did everything just kind of like flat and stupid with a big smile. I said, okay, thanks. Because I just didn't want to leave it on their terms, you know, because that's I, hilarious. I felt they were being. <laughs> wildly unfair finally is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now but really was not funny when it happened <laughs> oh oh god uh yeah um I, again biloxi blues and um we were just really squirrely on that show i mean i was in my 20s i was old enough to know better but we were just like crazy and we'd gotten busted a couple of times for laughing on stage and we were pretty arrogant <laughs> you know? and so anyway Matthew Broderick had this big scene with Penny Miller at the end of the show. It was like the penultimate scene. And um, it's a goodbye love scene. And um, and then the end, we were all on the train part of the set, like going, you know, being shipped out to war. Uh, and we were all supposed to be asleep on the on the train. So I had my shoes in my hand and I'm just waiting off stage. Right. And I look up and on a hook is a hoodie and one of those zipper hoodies. Right. So I said to Brian Tarantino, who's no longer with us, but I said, Brian, zip me up in this thing. And so he zipped me up. So my arms were inside the body of the thing. And we put the hands of the, the hoodie in the pockets. And then I put my shoes on my hands and I got down in a, like a push up position, like an up dog position. And I walked right to the edge of the proscenium and I had Brian squinch the face, you know, so it was like <laughs> a pointy, a pointy uh, hoodie with a little squinched face like this. And I looked like a gnome. You know, I look like an, and so I, I was standing there just off stage and Matthew happened to glance over at me. And then I leaned against the proscenium and crossed my uh, hands like I was crossing my legs, you know, <laughs> and he started to laugh 
Penny Miller was so furious. She wanted to kill me. She wanted to kill me. And we could hear her. She was in the trap room screaming her guts out while we were doing the the final scene of the, <laughs> the play and Matthew was talking to the audience, you know, explaining what was going on. Then he'd say to me and, you know, sort of what he'd say, she's going to murder you. <laughs> Insane. And then uh, we all got in very big trouble, very, very big trouble for that. Uh, and we were put on notice that if we ever did anything like crossed our eyes at each other or, or uh, took too long a pause in any particular, we would be fired on the spot, you know? And so guess, now, yeah, <laughs> Now, I mean, it started out as like a gag and then t- went horribly wrong. And uh, we all got in desperate trouble. <laughs> I guess that's how boring it can get doing the same show uh, eight times a week. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I really loved being uh, in plays. And um, I, I'm, I maybe it's just an age thing, but it just seems like awfully hard work. I think movies and, and television shows are so much more civilized because you might work 12 hours a day, but you have your weekends off. <laughs> you know, you're probably not going to get called in every day. Eight shows a week. I, I don't know who thought that up, but it was no actor. I can tell <laughs> <Yeah>. you. Um, <laughs> but if, there, if something was like perfect and wonderful, uh, maybe I'd do one last play, but it takes <laughs> well, a lot. Of yeah. Um, Alan, thank you so much for doing this. And seriously, congratulations on this four season run of succession. It's, I think, one of the, the great achievements of, of television and, and you were a huge part of it. Um, so uh, it's been really a pleasure talking with you about it. Thanks, Matt. Nice talking with you. All right. Thank you again to Alan Ruck for that really, really great conversation. I will be rooting hard for him at the Emmys. And as I said, Hope he's able to get back to work and capitalize on all of his success very soon. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who's coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you very soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.